BBC Sounds. Music, radio, podcasts. Hello, I'm Joshua Rosenberg and thanks for downloading this edition of Law in Action from BBC Radio 4. This week I'm continuing my visit to the United States and finding out why the US Supreme Court is quite so powerful. Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg is recovering at a hospital in Washington tonight after a fall. Here's Jen Crawford. Justice Ginsburg fell Wednesday night in her office at the Supreme Court. Tests showed she fractured three ribs on her left side and she was admitted... Justice Ginsburg was released from hospital at the end of last week and was said to be working from home. But it's not surprising that any story about her health is headline news across the United States. If this 85-year-old liberal judge decides to retire, President Trump will have the opportunity to replace her with someone who'll cement the Supreme Court's conservative majority. But that's as far as he can go. On this week's Law in Action, we'll be discovering how the court became so powerful that it can trump Congress. Also this week, jury bias. A psychologist tells me why he thinks we should be screening jurors in England and Wales before they're allowed to serve on rape trials. This is Washington, D.C. Ahead of me is the Capitol, where Congress sits and laws are made. But if I turn round, I see an extraordinary neoclassical building with columns, with mottos, with carvings, with marble. This is the place where laws can be unmade. This is the Supreme Court of the United States. This court has an extraordinary power it can overturn legislation. The judges found they had the power to declare laws unconstitutional when they delivered one of the most ingenious judgments in legal history. I asked Melvin Urofsky, Professor Emeritus of History and Public Policy at Virginia Commonwealth University, to take me through the twists and turns of a case that was decided more than two centuries ago. Marbury versus Madison is an 1803 case in which William Marbury had been named to be a justice of the peace for the District of Columbia in the last days of the John Adams administration. Adams had signed the commission, but it had never been delivered. And when Jefferson became president on March 4th of 1801, he ordered his secretary of state, James Madison, not to deliver the commissions that had not already been delivered. And one of them was to go to William Marbury. Well, without the commission on the wall, the person couldn't act as a justice of the peace and make the fees that a justice of the peace would get. It's a very lucrative office. So Marbury goes directly to the Supreme Court to seek a writ of mandamus. That's a writ that says you have to do something. And he does this because in the Judiciary Act of 1789, Congress gave the Supreme Court the power to issue writs of mandamus. So, William Marbury was appointed as a justice of the peace by a president from one political party, and now he wants the court to order a new president from another party to hand over a valuable document. The case comes before the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court, John Marshall. He's a very shrewd judge who understands the political realities of ruling against President Jefferson and his Secretary of State, James Madison. But Marshall is also a supporter of the outgoing president, John Adams, and his Federalist Party. So that poses a dilemma for the Chief Justice. If the court decided in favour of Marbury, he knew 
that the Jefferson administration wouldn't obey it. And that's not good for the court. If he decided in favor of Jefferson and Madison, they would say, well, he just tucked into them. So he came up with an absolutely brilliant solution. First, he said, should Mr. Marbury get his commission? The answer is absolutely yes, he should. Secondly, is a writ of mandamus the proper format for him to get it? Absolutely. Third, is this court the right place to get that writ of mandamus? No. So yes, Mr. Marbury, you are absolutely right. You deserve the commission, but this court can't give it to you. Why? Because the Judiciary Act giving us a writ of mandamus is unconstitutional. It goes beyond what the Constitution says we can do. So Marbury had a right, but not, in effect, a remedy. He was entitled to his commission, but he couldn't use the Judiciary Act to get it. And why was that? It's because the Judiciary Act said that anyone could go straight to the Supreme Court and ask for a court order. But the US Constitution says the Supreme Court is normally an appeal court. Ordinary people can't just go straight to the Supreme Court and lodge claims. So Congress had acted beyond its constitutional powers in passing the Judiciary Act. And if that law was unconstitutional, it could be overridden by the Supreme Court. Cliff Sloan is a litigation partner at the international law firm Skadden in Washington, D.C., and he's the author of a book about Marshall's great decision, as he calls it. What was so clever about the ruling, he said, was that it appeared to limit the court's powers while actually extending them. John Marshall was a genius in Marbury versus Madison because not only did he establish this fundamental power of the ability to declare an act of Congress unconstitutional, but he did it in a way that denied power to the judiciary because the act of Congress that he declared unconstitutional gave original jurisdiction rather than appellate jurisdiction to the Supreme Court. That means it could only hear appeals? Except in very extraordinary cases. So at the time that the Supreme Court was first using this very fundamental and consequential power, it was doing it in a way that cut back on the Supreme Court's own power and was self-denying. And in addition to that, his use of the power in the case of Marbury versus Madison meant that the Federalist, the person from John Adams' party, lost and the Jeffersonians won. So Marbury was seen as the Supreme Court rising above politics and rising above being a predictable political player. And that actually was the primary reaction at the time, more so than the use of the power to strike down a statute as unconstitutional. Neat move, eh? You come up with this extraordinary power of judicial review, the power to unmake an act of Congress. You do so in a way that nobody notices at the time, just to make sure you don't use the power for another 50 years. And by the time we get to the 20th century, the judges are all saying it's an essential cog in the US system of checks and balances. Former Chief Justice William Rehnquist said that Marbury was the single greatest contribution that Americans ever made to the art of government. Former Justice Sandra Day O'Connor said that because of the power of judicial review, every American has certain rights that no president and no Congress can take away from them. Now, there is always a very healthy debate about whether the Supreme Court 
is acting correctly when it finds an act of Congress or a state law unconstitutional. But I think that it is generally accepted as a fundamental cornerstone of the American system. The United Kingdom Supreme Court was created little more than nine years ago, and its justices have no power to overturn a clearly worded Act of Parliament. UK judges can't sit beyond the age of 75, and almost all of them now have to retire at 70. But Cliff Sloan says that the absence of a retirement age in the US Supreme Court and its historic origins buttress judicial independence. Very early on, just a year or two after Marbury, there was an effort to impeach and remove a Supreme Court justice because the Jeffersonian Congress strongly disagreed with his rulings, and he was impeached by the House, but he was not convicted and removed by the Senate, and that really established a principle that we don't impeach or remove justices or judges simply because we don't agree with them. But the fact that they have life tenure also accentuates the stakes when somebody goes onto the Supreme Court because they can be there for 30 years. The longest justice ever, William Douglas, was there for 35 years. But, you know, all of those things also contribute to independence on the part of the Supreme Court. And some of the Supreme Court's greatest moments have been when it has shown that independence. For example, in the Nixon tapes case, where it unanimously, including several appointees of Richard Nixon, held that Richard Nixon, as president, must comply with the subpoena that had been issued to him for the tapes in the Watergate controversy. And it was an example of the Supreme Court at its finest in terms of judicial independence. The court explicitly invoked Marbury versus Madison. Cliff Sloan from the law firm Scadden. But not everyone sees the Supreme Court in that way. Four years ago, a would-be senator was asked by a reporter to name the court's worst decisions. I would start with the idea of Marbury versus Madison, he replied. The man who said that is Matthew Whitaker, who's just been appointed by President Trump as acting Attorney General. He's also the law officer to whom Robert Mueller reports, and pretty much the only thing we know about Robert Mueller's investigation into claims of Russian interference in American politics is that he's working with a grand jury, an institution abolished in England and Wales 85 years ago. In the United States, though, grand juries still hear prosecution witnesses and decide whether there's enough evidence to put a defendant on trial. But because they meet behind closed doors and are sworn to secrecy, the only way of finding out what goes on in a grand jury is to talk to former federal prosecutors, people like Amy Jeffress, until recently the Justice Department attaché at the US Embassy in London, and now a partner at the global law firm Arnold & Porter in Washington, D.C., It's less formal than a trial, but a grand jury room has seats for the grand jurors and they're assembled around table or in rows, depending on the size and the configuration of the room. The prosecutor may go into the grand jury before the witness arrives to introduce the witness and explain the background. There's also a court reporter there to transcribe the testimony. The prosecutor will ask the majority of the questions, and then there is also an opportunity for the grand jurors themselves to ask questions. Depending on the prosecutor's style or the rules in the district, the 
Grangers may be able to raise their hands and ask those questions directly, or they may excuse the witness from the room and have the grand jury uh, present their questions to the prosecutor and then have the witness come back and have the prosecutor ask the questions. But that's how the uh, questioning proceeds. So it's all done in private. It's like a trial, but there are no press there, and the potential defendant may not even know it's going on. That's correct. And I understand that there is a lot of controversy about the way that this proceeds in the UK. And I used to read the term star chamber as applied to the grand jury. And I don't think that that is accurate. The grand jury does conduct investigations in secret. And it is true that the prosecutor does bring a case without participation from the defendant who might be charged. But remember that the grand jury is only impaneled to collect the evidence, to investigate the case, and then to bring charges. And then once charges are brought, the defendant has all of the rights in the U.S. system to present evidence and to defend against the charges. And all of those proceedings are conducted in public, in court. And so I I wouldn't say that the grand jury is an unfair process. But what's the point of it? Do you think that the grand jury system here in the United States serves a useful purpose? As a former prosecutor, I certainly do think it serves a useful purpose. I thought the grand jury was a very good way to test evidence. And what about defence lawyers? And you're now a defence lawyer. How do you feel about it from this side of the fence? So I actually don't feel that differently about it because I do think that there are cases where the grand jury is an important check on the prosecutor. And I know that that's not a common view and is often criticized. But I have seen cases where I thought that the influence of the grand jury was useful in that the prosecutor may think that a case is very um, strong and, and have a desire to bring a case, but the grand jury may not agree for various reasons. And so I, I think it does serve a useful purpose. Amy Jeffress represents wealthy clients facing charges in government and national security cases. Across Washington, Abby Smith defends people at the other end of the scale, people with no money at all. When we met at Georgetown University, where she's Professor of Law and runs a criminal defence clinic, Abby Smith explained the thinking behind the grand jury in the United States. It had a promising history. It was supposed to be driven by citizens and not driven by prosecutors so that official misconduct could be revealed. That was the promise of the grand jury, so that citizens could come together and report police or law enforcement misconduct, government official misconduct, including elected official misconduct. Increasingly, it's known as the puppet of prosecutors. You know, there's a saying that a a prosecutor could indict a ham sandwich before a grand jury. At their best, Grand juries consist of citizens who at least ask questions. They ask questions of the prosecutor. They ask questions of the witnesses who come before them. So it's a very secretive, very non-transparent system. I came of age in a jurisdiction that relied on preliminary hearings, where um, at the time actual witnesses testified, not just police officers testifying to secondhand information. And I think that's the preferable system. There's greater transparency Defense counsel and prosecutors can absolutely size up the case. A judge would sometimes reduce overcharging based on the evidence. The question of of whether the person would be detained prior to trial or not is made in a more informed way after live testimony. I, I prefer that system. 
And frankly, that gives the accused a really important taste of the evidence. It's very useful in making an informed decision about whether the case should go to, to trial or not. Professor Abby Smith. If a serious case does go to trial, it'll be heard not by a grand jury of up to 23 people, but instead by no more than 12 people, sitting as what used to be called a petty jury. At first glance, jury trial in the United States looks pretty similar to trial by jury in England and Wales. But dig more deeply and you see that attempts to reduce jury bias have had the opposite effect in the US. Some commentators think that US juries are now too easily manipulated. Might we soon lose faith in the jury system here? Adam Benferrado is Professor of Law at Drexel University in Philadelphia but he's also a keen student of psychology. We in the United States have great faith in the layman juror. The idea of common people taking charge of the legal system was a really noble ideal. And the only problem with that is that we kind of assumed that humans would be able to flip these switches in their brain and unfortunately, the latest evidence from uh, the mind sciences, most notably cognitive psychology, suggests that that is just not true. Can you give me some examples? Yeah. So, you know, I, as a law professor, I am often called for jury duty and then removed very swiftly because lawyers usually do not want law professors on juries. And of uh, course, they know you're a law professor at the outset because what, you have to give your job? They do. Well, there's a questionnaire about your background, but also asks you questions like, if you heard testimony from a police officer, would you be more or less likely to believe that testimony? Now, in my jury pool, some people circled yes on that. Now, how do we deal with that? Well, in the jury that I served on, the judge simply explained what it means to be objective, neutral and then asked everyone who'd checked yes, well, now that you've heard the definition, I'm asking you, can you set aside your biases? Every single person said, yes, we moved on. But could they set aside their biases? Well, what the psychological research suggests is that no one is able to set aside the biases in that way. Bias behavior may not be subject to introspection. It may be the result of implicit, even unconscious mechanisms over which people have little conscious awareness or control. And unfortunately, these types of biases, you know, in a questionnaire, someone may say, well, I have no problems with people of any race. I treat everyone the same. But then when it comes down to actual trial, these implicit mechanisms, these stereotypes may lead someone to view that person and treat that person differently. You've told me a little bit about the questionnaire that you have to fill in before you're allowed to serve on a jury. Is it possible by reading those questionnaires and by uh, arranging a jury to neutralize the bias by having some people biased in one direction and some people biased in another direction? One of the things that's different between the United States and the UK is with respect to how voir dire is conducted. So T tell me what voir dire means here. Right. So this is the process by which we try to gain that ideal jury, that jury which really is a jury of peers that represents the community's values and that is objective and fair and that will look at things in a neutral way. And so in the United States, the way that we deal with this is we have these things called challenges for cause, right, which are, you know, 
if the particular juror happens to be married to the prosecutor, that's an obvious reason why we might want to remove that person. But there are also these things called peremptory challenges in the United States. And these have largely been eliminated, I believe, in the United Kingdom. But in the United States, each side is given a particular set of challenges for any reason. Really, the only reasons that you cannot exclude a juror are race or gender. That the United States Supreme Court has said is unconstitutional. But everything else is okay. And do you have to give a reason? You don't unless you are pressed. Now, if someone challenges you and says, well, the only reason you kick that person off is because they are a black female, then you have to provide another reason. Now, the problem is this is so easily gamed. You can choose any reason at all. And so courts have upheld things like saying, well, that guy's pants were kind of sagging at the waist. He's kind of sloppy. This really requires meticulous folks on our jury. We can exclude him. And what this has allowed is the rise of the jury consultant industry. Today, for wealthy clients, hiring trial consultants is standard procedure. And the goal, obviously, if you were spending thousands and thousands of dollars on one of these people, is to stack the cards in your favor. So you want to actually do juror profiles of each juror, figure out before the trial has even begun which people are in your favor or in your camp and which people aren't. And there are all these tricks and maneuvers for trying to stack the jury with the people who are most biased in your side. Now, the trial consultant industry will tell you, no, our goal is objectivity, fairness. But I'm a lawyer. My best friends are all high-powered lawyers. They would never pay the money they do to make things fair. They don't want fairness. They want to win. You might assume that who are these trial consultants? You might assume that well, they're all lawyers. Nope, they are not all lawyers. They are PhD psychologists. These are people who are reading the latest journal articles all about the things we've just talked about, biases, prejudice, how to frame things. And that means that the process, I think, is, is broken. Professor Adam Benferrado, but not all psychologists are trying to secure biased juries. Dr Dominic Wilmot, a research fellow in psychology at the University of Huddersfield, wants to exclude bias, particularly in rape cases. He's come up with the novel, not to say controversial, idea of screening juries in England and Wales ahead of a rape trial and excluding those guilty of what he calls rape myth acceptance. Bias can be both explicit, people can endorse explicit views and opinions towards things such as race, and you know it's clear to see that they are biased in that particular issue, but also bias can function implicitly. It sits below conscious awareness, and often we're not able to recognize or even understand that we hold such biases. So the idea that jurors can be told to set aside their biases, that they quite simply agree to do so and, and judge the facts impartially, is totally unfounded. We know that bias sits implicitly and therefore jurors quite simply can't put those to one side. What does influence juries? So what we found then was that demographic factors such as age, gender, level of education, none of those characteristics had any direct relationship upon the verdicts that jurors returned. 
Um, Self-esteem had no direct relationship. I was surprised to find that. The most important variables was the crime-specific attitudes, so rate myth acceptance, but also psychologically, strong psychological traits such as egocentricity, interpersonal manipulation, a lack of empathy uh, was a very important variable. We found those to directly implicate the verdict that jurors would return. Effectively, if you score high in these personality traits, you are significantly more likely to return a not guilty verdict. And when you say rape myth acceptance, what are you referring to? So common rape myths are that a person who commits a rape is a stranger that's hiding in a, a dark alleyway or a bush and jumps out and violently attacks somebody. We know that this is not the case. This is actually only 10% of cases are are this way. Another common rape myth would be if a woman wears a short skirt or if she invites a man home or she willingly goes home with a man having met him in a nightclub, that this is some sort of acceptance that sex will occur. And the way it can have a negative impact when this reaches trial is jurors think if this is the perception of a real rape is and and it doesn't match that, then this can't be a rape and I can't return a guilty verdict. Uh, And your answer is what then? How would you deal with the problem of jury bias? Well, I think there's a number of different solutions. The first being we re-educate jurors, so we give them further training around crime-specific attitudes, like some jurisdictions across the world do. They will give expert testimony around some of the, the biases that jurors may likely buy into in the hope that they're able to set those aside. I have to admit, I strongly advocate against that system. I don't think it would work. We actually we attempted to test this premise. Does it work? Will it reduce bias? And it appeared not to. Another solution which is growing in popularity throughout the UK is this notion of actually removing the jury process altogether. We have judge-only trials within particular cases that are known to have a number of difficulties, for example, rape cases and sexual offences. Of course, you'd still have judicial bias. You'd have the risk that the judge was biased. And I suppose the risk would be greater if there was just one person deciding on guilt or innocence rather than 12. Judges, in fact, have, I believe, at least a few days, if not a full week's training around what rapists are, why not to accept them, how not to accept them within the UK. So there's some argument that a judge would be in a better position to administer the law exactly as it is, to the letter of the law, whereas jurors are perhaps not able to, not having that knowledge. You recommend some degree of juror screening before a trial. How would that work? Yeah, this is the solution that I think will ultimately fix the problem. I think the science and the psychology is rigid enough that we can implement a screening procedure. Often I get criticised for this perspective, I have to say, because people think I'm advocating a US-style jury screening system. Couldn't be further from the truth. The US system doesn't work effectively, in my opinion. It's not based in any scientific or psychological methods per se. And how would it work in practice? Would you ask potential jurors a series of questions before they're allowed to serve? Yeah. And, you know, these are subtle enough now, these questions, that we'll be able to effectively assess what attitudes they have towards crimes such as rape without them really knowing that that's what we're doing. I don't want you to give the game away, but give me an example of the sort of subtle question you might ask which might enable you to decide uh, whether uh, a juror was, as you put it, rape trial eligible. So an example of a question would be, alcohol is often the culprit when a woman is raped. So alcohol is, this is what causes the rape rather than the defendant's actions per se. So it's around assessing jurors' attitudes towards where blame lies. Is the defendant culpable themselves or is there external factors that we can use as an excuse almost to excuse the uh, offence of rape? Surely a judge can explain all that to a jury, tell them to put aside these biases you've identified and then enable the jury to decide the case on the evidence. 
Well, in theory, yes, they can and they do. What my research would suggest, as well as a number of others, is that these attitudes, these beliefs, these myths that jurors buy into are so deeply ingrained, they're so deep-rooted that they're almost unable to set them aside. They can't physically set them aside. Dr Dominic Wilmot from the University of Huddersfield. And I don't think we've heard the last word on that particular hot potato. Next week, though, we'll be back in the United States for the last in my series of special reports. Thanks for listening to this edition of Law in Action, presented by me, Joshua Rosenberg, and produced by Neil Koenig. Do subscribe to this programme on BBC Sounds and don't miss the next episode.